and welcome to a 202 Decades bonus episode. We have been spending a lot of time in a very limited area of the Roman world, mostly Rome. While there have been excursions to the Rhine frontier of Germania, Judea, and to Britain, most of the empire has been neglected. Because this early period of Western history has been very focused on Rome, I wanted to step out of the Eternal City and out of all of Italy and take a look at the provinces. We are dealing with a very interconnected Roman world now, so I think exploring its unity and its diversity will be helpful. This won't be an exhaustive tour of every single province, but we will stop in most of the significant provinces and get a feel for the local happenings. So, without further ado, let's set out. Moving out of Italy, we cross over the Alps and pass down into the province of Gaul in modern France. Gaul had been part of the Roman world for a century now, and was well on its way to becoming a very Roman place. The territory that is now part of the country of France was split into several provinces. The heart of Gaul was split into three provinces, the Trace Gallii. First, Gallia Aquitania in the southwest, bordering the Pyrenees Mountains and the Atlantic Ocean. Its capital was first at Mediolanum Santunum, but soon moved to Bertigalia, modern Bordeaux. Second was Gallia Belgica, in the northwest, covering land near the Rhine River that is today part of northern France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and western Germany, with its capital at Reims, and later Trier. Third was Gallia Lugdunensis a long province stretching from eastern France westward to the regions of Normandy and Brittany. Its capital was Lugdunensis, modern Lyon. High in the Alps were three more very small provinces in a north-south line near the borders of modern France and Italy. They were Alpes Pinaniae, Alpes Cotiae, and Alpes Maritimae. Farther south, bordering the Mediterranean, was another province, Narbonensis, which had been Roman for almost a century longer than the Trace Gallii. The place was by now so Roman that Pliny the Elder says that this region could more truthfully be described as a part of Italy than as a province. So we'll skip this region in our tour. Following Caesar's conquest of the Trace Gallii, which involved massive political disruptions and the death of up to a million of the local Gallic people, work got underway Romanizing the country. Cities were planned on a Roman model, with straight streets, public forums, temples to Roman gods, and emperors. Roads were built across the country to facilitate movement of trade and movement of the army. Many of Caesar's veterans were settled in colonies across Gaul, where they established agriculture, populated cities, and strengthened the Romanness of the place. In later centuries, we will see great villas established in the region by the elite and large-scale plantations planted around them. At this point in our story, this was only just beginning. Agriculture at smaller scales was still the chief activity of the region. Much like today, wine was an important export of the provinces. It is said the Greeks had brought grapes with them when they established the colony of Massalia, modern Marseille, and from there, viniculture had spread across Gaul. Other specialties of the province included its cheeses, textiles, horses, metallurgy, and woodcraft. The local Gauls were becoming Romanized to various degrees. In the 40s, we saw Claudius grant citizenship to many in Gaul, and he even granted some of the nobles of a few Gallic tribes to enter the Senate. There's evidence that the use of the Roman tunic became increasingly popular during the 1st century AD. Latin began to be adopted by more of the population, and within a couple of centuries, it was said the inhabitants of Gaul spoke a purer Latin than the Italians. Still, Gaul was a big and diverse place, and many Gallic people held on to their traditional language, culture, and religion for centuries. 
Gaul remained mostly peaceful throughout the first century, but a few small revolts of the locals did test the Roman occupation. In 21 AD, the chiefs of two tribes in the north rebelled in response to harsh taxation policies placed upon them. Their rebellion was a short one. Two legions were brought in by Gaius Silius, and the revolt was quashed. This Gaius Silius was the father of the Gaius Silius we met in the episodes on the 50s, the man who not so secretly married Messalia, Claudius' third wife, and was executed for it. In the first couple of decades, we spent a good deal of time along the Rhine frontier. In our current decade, the 50s, there was still large concentrations of legions along the river. Whereas at first the intention was for a flexible and proactive defense, after Varus's disaster and the end of Germanicus's campaign, Tiberius began to fortify the frontier. In later decades of the first century, work will begin constructing the Limes Germanicus, a series of frontier walls and ditches near the upper Rhine and upper Danube rivers where they are easily crossed. Rome held a few footholds of land on the far side of the rivers in this area, and the Limes protected them. Gaul was not only the access point to Germania, but also to Britain. We talked about Britain and the Roman invasion and conquest of the island for a while in the 40s, so our stop here will be brief. In 52 AD, Astorius Scapula, the governor of Britannia, died. He was replaced by Aulus Didius Gallus. The conquest and Romanization of the island was advancing well. The new governor extended Roman control toward the wild borders with Wales, but did not advance further. Claudius felt invading the remote and extremely hostile area would not be worth the effort. When Nero became emperor, though, apparently Gallus got the go-ahead and incursions were made from Roman territory west into Wales and north toward modern Yorkshire. Claudius's caution would soon prove to be warranted. With the armies dispersed at the frontiers of Roman-controlled Britain, we will see a massive revolt break out, much closer to the heart of Roman Britain. The Romans will struggle to bring their soldiers back from the frontiers in time to stop the momentum of the rebellion. Next on our tour, we head south to the Iberian Peninsula, home to modern Spain and Portugal. The Romans generally called the whole peninsula Hispania, but Iberia was also used. I have and will continue to try to refer to the peninsula as Hispania at least until the end of the Roman presence there. Hispania had been linked with Rome for far longer than Gaul or Britain had been. Roman occupation had really begun during the Second Punic War when the general Scipio Africanus had defeated the Carthaginian hold over the south and east of the peninsula. Like Gaul, the Iberian Peninsula was divided into three provinces. First was Hispania Citerior Terraconensis, or just Terraconensis. This province straddled the whole length of the peninsula in the north, bordering much of the east coast of the Mediterranean, the Pyrenees Mountains, and stretching through what is now Galicia to the Atlantic Ocean. Its capital was Taraco, modern Tarragona, which sits on the Mediterranean, not far south of Barcelona. Second was Hispania Baetica, in the south of modern Spain, covering most of the modern province of Andalusia along the southern coast of the Mediterranean. It included ancient cities like Gades, modern Cadiz, along the coast, but its capital was inland at Cordoba. Third was Hispania Lusitania, which covered most of what's Portugal today plus modern Extremadura and the province of Salamanca in Spain. Its capital was Emerita Augusta, modern Merida. While Roman occupation had started long before, it wasn't until the rule of Augustus that the entire peninsula was brought under Roman control. During the civil wars of the late Republic, Hispania was a base of resistance and frequently a battleground. Once things had settled down, Augustus set about conquering the last holdouts. Spain, as a rule, is a mountainous place, but the north of the country, 
west of its border with Gaul, is especially rugged. Here, the remote Cantabrian and Asturian tribes took until 19 BC, requiring what's called the Cantabrian War before they ultimately surrendered. So, like Gaul, things along the Mediterranean were by now pretty Roman. Places along the Atlantic, in the interior, or in the highlands, not so much. Most of what I'll describe next applies specifically to places that by the 50s AD had been controlled by Rome for over a century. Romanization of Hispania along the Mediterranean had advanced so much that it was by now perhaps one of the most Roman places outside of Italy. Several of the key towns were not native, but newly built cities by the Romans. Taraco, for example, had begun as an army camp during the Second Punic War, and Emerita Augusta had been founded as a place of retirement for soldiers retiring from the 5th and 10th legions. Because of the long Roman influence and many Roman settlements, near the Mediterranean coasts, much of the indigenous Celtic, Celtiberian, and Iberian identity had been laid aside. Farther inland, it seems the people still recognized their distinct tribal background, and it probably played a part in their identities. Here I'm drawing from the excellent book by Martin Goodman called Rome and Jerusalem, where he goes into depth regarding how three regions, Spain, Greece, and Egypt, saw themselves and saw Rome, and then contrasts them with the Jewish people of Judea. Regarding Hispania, he remarks that so much of what the ancient writers from Hispania wrote was focused on Rome, written in Latin, and aimed at a Roman readership. One example is Seneca, the tutor of Nero who we met last episode, who was from Hispania Baetica, as was his father, who also authored several works. It's notable that the Senecas and several other surviving writers have Rome as their audience rather than their fellow provincials. But Goodman goes on to propose that this may be due more to a survivorship bias rather than reflecting the sum of all works written. What I mean is that there may have been much work written by locals of Hispania, intended for readers in Hispania, but over the centuries, works intended for a Roman audience were more commonly copied and preserved, and more of these survived into the present. He offers a counterexample, which is illuminating. Where the other authors frame their writing in a Roman mindset, a geographical work survives by Pomponius Mella that runs counter to this. Instead of seeing himself as a Romanized person, Mella clearly emphasizes his Punic, meaning his Carthaginian, background. When he writes his geography, he hearkens back to the good old days of Carthage and its predecessors of Tyre and Sidon in Phoenicia, rather than classical Greece or Republican Rome. In Mela's geography, he puts more emphasis on the coasts of Spain and North Africa than Italy or Greece. And he has a clear historical memory of the Punic Wars, but from the opposite perspective of other surviving works. He refers to an island in the Mediterranean being the site of a Roman disaster, which for him meant not a Roman defeat, but a Roman victory over his people. Goodman proposes this work survived where others from a similar perspective didn't, because it offered a geography written in Latin, which was more accessible to the medieval world and medieval copyists than other geographies written in Greek. Mella's work shows that while much of Hispania had been Romanized and many in Hispania looked to Rome for the center of their intellectual lives, other cultural identities still survived more than two centuries after the Carthaginians lost their hold on Hispania. A strong Phoenician-slash-Punic-slash-Carthaginian identity survived in the south of the peninsula. This glimpse into the past reveals that there were likely many people across the empire with similar nostalgia for a lost pre-Roman time. Syrians missing the Seleucids, Egyptians missing the pharaohs, and Greeks missing their independence. We'll see several of these holdouts as our tour continues. Back to Hispania, though. Roman occupation of Hispania meant transforming the country with major works of engineering. Like in Italy, Roman roads were established to ease trade and movement of the army across the rugged country. 
On a personal note, I've walked a few of these Roman roads in the north of the peninsula, and for their age, they still hold up remarkably well. Other evidence of Roman engineering survives today, including the prominent aqueduct cutting through the city of Segovia, or the bridge crossing the Guadalquivir River in Cordoba. Hispania was a lucrative province for the Romans. Although garum, a popular fish sauce, was mass-produced here, as was olive oil and wine, the mines of Hispania stand out. Mining was carried out in several sites across the peninsula on an almost industrial scale. At a site in northern Spain called Las Medulas, the Romans employed an early form of what was basically mountaintop removal to access veins of gold or silver hidden in the mountains. Water was pumped into deep mines at pressure high enough to split rock. Pliny the Elder describes the technique employed and calls it ruina montium, wrecking the mountains. At Las Medulas today, eerie peaks of stone stand up like fingers, remnants of the mountains the Romans tore down to reach precious metals. The engine of these mines was mass slave labor. If you were a slave in the Roman world, being sent to the mines of Hispania was one of the worst fates you could face. Whether from backbreaking work or horrible pollution, the life expectancy of slaves there was horrifically short. Leaving Hispania, we head south and hop across the Straits of Gibraltar and enter North Africa by which I mean the Mediterranean-adjacent coast, stretching from modern Morocco to the border with Egypt. Four provinces make up this area. Starting from the west in modern Morocco was Mauritania Tingitana, with its capital at Tingis, opposite the Straits of Hispania. Moving east was Mauritania Caesariensis, covering most of the coast of modern Algeria. Its capital was at Caesarea. Next, still moving to the east, was Africa Proconsularis, which was a large province covering modern Tunisia and much of Libya. Its capital was at Carthage. As we briefly talked about in the 40s, Mauritania had been a client kingdom ruled by Juba until he was executed by Caligula. This execution resulted in a major revolt by the native Berber population. Restoring order took several years, and soldiers had to be brought in from the province of Africa to put down the revolt. The city of Carthage had been rebuilt during the Civil War period, after it had been brutally destroyed in 146 BC, at the end of the Third Punic War. The region around Carthage had become, and would continue to be, one of the wealthiest areas of the Roman Empire. North Africa today is a fairly dry place though nothing like the bone-dry Sahara to the south. During the Roman period, though, it seems the area was significantly more humid and the region was a major source of agriculture for the empire. During our period, grain was still probably the chief export, but already a transition was occurring toward farming of more specialized crops, like olive oil and dates. The middle of the first century also marked the beginning of production of what is called red slip pottery. This red-orange colored pottery, making up plates, bowls, vases, etc., would go on in later centuries to become a principal export of the region. So much was produced that it has been found all over the Roman world and beyond, with findings as far away as the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland and all the way to India. If you think of North Africa during the rest of the Roman period, think of large-scale export of agriculture and pottery. As we head toward Egypt from Carthage, we will pass through Cyrenica. This one at first seems strange, as it combines the Libyan coast with the island of Crete into one province. But when you consider that the Greek colonies of Cyrene and Apollonia had been in the region for centuries, and that Crete is about halfway between the North African coast and mainland Greece, the grouping isn't so strange. The capital of this province was Gortina on Crete. This province, especially in Cyrene, gives us a preview of what we'll find when we reach Egypt. 
The city of Cyrene, although founded by the Greeks, by this point was very diverse. Likely also home to Berbers, Italians, Egyptians, and others. A significant Jewish population lived in the city too, evidenced by large revolts breaking out among the Jews there in 73 and 115 AD. Important to the region had been the production of silphium. This plant was used across the ancient world as a contraceptive, but apparently it only grew well in Cyrenica. The exact identity of the plant is still unknown, and it's thought that over-harvesting during or soon after our current decade led to the extinction of the plant by no later than the end of the 2nd century. Next, we pass into Egypt. When Egypt comes to mind in the Roman world, your thoughts should probably be categorized into either Alexandria or the rest of Egypt. Let's start with Alexandria. The city was founded by Alexander the Great, of course, in 331 BC. After the death of Alexander, the city became home to the Ptolemaic dynasty, one of the Diadochi, the generals who split up the remains of Alexander's empire. The Ptolemies controlled Egypt and occasionally surrounding territory for centuries, ruling from their capital of Alexandria. Under their rule, the city grew to a massive size and became a center of Greek culture. It's estimated the city's population was up to 300,000 under the Ptolemies. Famous, of course, were the Library of Alexandria and its large lighthouse, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The city played a key role in the final stages of the civil wars of the late Republic. If you want a refresher, go back and listen to the final prologue episode of this series. With power split between Octavian, later called Augustus, and Mark Antony, Antony controlled the east, and with Cleopatra's influence, he began the process of making Alexandria, rather than Rome, the capital of the empire. If Antony had won at Actium, it's likely he would have succeeded in this. But Augustus had won, and Antony and Cleopatra had died, the line of Ptolemaic rulers of Egypt ending with her. Augustus had used the vast wealth of Egypt to fund his restructuring of Roman politics. Holding Egypt was key to the establishment of the Principate, so much so that to secure it, members of the senatorial class were forbidden from entering the province without specific permission from the princeps. Germanicus had entered Egypt shortly before his death, without permission of Tiberius, and if you adhere to the Tiberius killed Germanicus theory, this violation could be taken as a proximate cause. In our decade, Alexandria was second only to Rome in size. It was an especially cosmopolitan and diverse place, with a thin Roman veneer, a large Greek population making up much of the elite, a large community of Jews, and no doubt a significant proportion of local Egyptians. Given its size and economic pull, undoubtedly Arabs, Syrians, Nubians, Armenians, and probably even Indians could be found living or trading along its streets. The two largest non-Egyptian communities were the Greeks and the Jews, and the two often came into conflict over their competing rights and privileges. The Jewish community was nearly as old as the Greeks. Josephus claims Alexander himself had invited Jews to move into his new city. Although this is suspect, the community does date back at least several centuries, and had become the most well-established and influential Jewish community outside of Judea. In 38 AD, Herod Agrippa, who would later help Claudius become emperor, was sent to Alexandria by Caligula. Caligula didn't trust Flaccus, the governor of Egypt, so he had Agrippa drop in unannounced. Agrippa's arrival was met by jeers and insults from the Greek population, who saw him as the king of the Jews, whether or not that was his official title. With the Greeks incensed, Flaccus had tried to calm them by removing a privilege of the Jews, their right not to worship the emperor. Flaccus ordered statues of Caligula be placed in their synagogues. The Jews, of course, were outraged at this violation, and they physically resisted entry to their synagogues. This resulted in violence, and atrocities were perpetrated on both sides. Eventually, when the fighting died down, the Jews of Alexandria were forced out of much of the city and required to live in their own quarter. Our source for this period in Alexandria is the great Jewish writer, Philo. 
Tensions rose shortly after in the city, when word came that Caligula intended to have a golden statue of himself placed in the Temple of Jerusalem. Philo himself wrote an appeal to the emperor explaining why the Jews could not tolerate this. Even the governor of Syria appealed to Caligula, and either the matter was dropped or Caligula was slain before his orders could be enforced. Tensions were not only between Greek and Jew, but also between the two communities and Rome itself. The Jewish hostility to Roman rule is obvious. Rome officially encouraged the imperial cult and viewed many of the Jews' customs, especially resting on the Sabbath, bizarre and foreign. Alexandrian Greek hostility towards Rome may seem less obvious at first. Through Hellenization, the Romans had adopted much of Greek culture. But the Greeks here had become accustomed to their own running of the government in the city and in all of Egypt, and now they resented the loss of their privilege. Stories of Greek resistance to Roman rule became popular in the city, and those punished for their disobedience were elevated as martyrs. So we see that Alexandria was a complex and stratified place with competing factions jockeying for influence. Almost absent from that discussion, though, has been the Egyptian people themselves. If Rome was at the top of the societal ladder, native Egyptians were at the bottom. Outside of Alexandria, these natives formed the vast majority of the population. Like all of the ancient world, most people lived in small agricultural communities. The cities, such as Memphis, Ptolemais, and Thebes, were urban outposts along the Nile River that, while extremely important, influential, and connected to the wider Mediterranean world, were never large cities in a modern sense. Few cities in the ancient world were. Outside of Alexandria, the province was split into subdivisions called nomoi. Each nome was governed by a strategos, who was a civilian administrator. Unlike in much of the empire, officials, including the governor of the province, were of the equestrian rather than the senatorial class. Out in the nomoi, much had been preserved from the Ptolemaic times and the times of the pharaohs. Greek culture had seeped into much of the country, yes, but many of the traditional practices of ancient Egypt remained. A striking example, one that was highly frowned upon outside of Egypt, was brother-sister marriages. Evidence for this shows up in contracts, census records, and in private letters. The practice was common, but not universal. A record found from a private citizen shows that of a specific man's five children, two of them married. The practice had even seeped into the Greeks living in Egypt, and some of the ruling Ptolemy dynasty had adopted the practice. For Romans, though, this was an alien custom, and it remained illegal for anyone who was a Roman citizen. The Egyptian religion also lived on in the province. Like Egyptian customs, some aspects of the religion had been Hellenized, with several Egyptian gods becoming associated with equivalent Greek gods, such as Zeus and Ammon, or Hera and Isis. The Egyptian priestly class was a distinct aspect of Egyptian religion. They were descended from the priesthood of the old days of the pharaohs, but they had experienced a significant decline in power with Rome now in control. Still, they carried out their rituals, their engravings in traditional hieroglyphs, their many festival days, and their ritual cleanliness. Fragments survive of a document on the Egyptian religion written by Cairmon of Alexandria, a Stoic philosopher who among his pupils counted Emperor Nero. Cairmon, in discussing the priestly class, attempts to portray them as philosophers and tries to interpret their rituals as indications of allegorical truths. These interpretations seem to be an attempt to contextualize the religion in a way that would be palatable to the wider Hellenized world outside of Egypt. The everyday life of Egypt is known on a much more granular level than most places in the Roman world. They say that the victors write the histories. While that's true to some extent, I would rephrase that as the victors perpetuate the histories. In Egypt, though, even this clarification falls short. There's so much writing of the ancient world that's been lost, which was never deemed important enough to painstakingly copy and preserve through the centuries. Egypt's advantage is its dry environment. Papyrus texts here have been preserved without the filter of a copyist. We can read the originals, buried under the sand or tucked away for centuries. Because of this, we have preserved writing on many more workaday things from Egypt, 
like a man who sued his construction worker for stealing his wife's earrings, or a census record stating the property of Pantheus, Tithoenesis, Phallicris, and Heronesis. The names recorded in these papyrus documents confirm that the use of Egyptian names among the natives remained common. Such documents would only survive in a place like Gaul if they were intentionally copied every few centuries. But in Egypt, the desert did the preserving for us. Much of the writing found is written in Greek, but a significant portion is in the native Egyptian language, written in a script called Demotic, which looks a lot like Arabic but was an evolution of hieroglyphics. Coptic, the script used today by Egypt's Christian minority, began to be used extensively in the 3rd century. When it came to the economy of Egypt, the Nile was king, or pharaoh. Grain farmed along the fertile banks of the Nile was the chief export of the hinterland. Barges would have shipped immense quantities of grain downstream to the north, much of it going to Alexandria. Near there, the barges would have been switched for more seaworthy vessels, which could haul the remainder across the Mediterranean to Rome and its new port, built to receive enough grain to feed the million hungry residents. Egypt's geography also facilitated trade with the wider world. Three ports on the Red Sea coast of Egypt were used as launch points for trade with Arabia, India, and the east coast of Africa. Control of Egypt gave Rome access to the spice trade, where the Romans traded wine, olive oil, gold, and pottery for Indian spices, sugar, fruits, exotic animals, and cotton clothing. Global trade was difficult in the ancient world, but it is far from a new phenomenon. One final note from reading on Egypt and Nero that I found fascinating was an expedition Nero ordered to discover the source of the Nile. Herodotus, in the 5th century BC, had recorded his journey south along the Nile, all the way to Elephantine, a place where half the inhabitants were Egyptian and half were Ethiopians. Much, much later, under Augustus, a force had been sent south from Egypt to the border with Ethiopia and Nubia. After some small-scale fighting, though, a treaty was made setting the boundary at the first cataract, meaning shallow rapids along the Nile near modern Aswan. Fifty years later, Nero's expedition was made up of Praetorians and Egyptians. They would have rowed up the Nile as far south as possible, porting their boats around each of the cataracts they came to. They now entered the regions of Nubia and came to the great city of Meroe. Here in modern Sudan was a city built beside the Nile, still famous for its dozens of pyramids in the distinct, sharply pointed Nubian style. The expedition met with the ruler of the city, a queen named Kandake, who helped supply them on their journey. It was near Meroe where they began to see changes in the environment. They first saw brightly colored parrots. The grass began to become greener as they kept moving south. Soon, more woodlands were seen, and here they began to see rhinoceros and elephants. Before long, though, they reached a great, interminable marshland. Not only were they plagued by clouds of insects, but they weren't able to make progress through the weeds and reeds on their boats. Crocodiles and hippos would have been another danger. Only by taking small, one-man crafts, like a modern kayak or canoe, were they able to make progress further. This swampland is thought to be the Sud, in modern South Sudan. From here, their journey isn't clear. Their account says that after the swamp, they came to a cascade where the river passed between two huge rocks. Some think this describes the Murchison Falls, which are in northern Uganda. I'm a sucker for stories like this, of journeys into the unknown, but come on, Romans in Uganda? Pretty cool. Leaving Egypt, we crossed the Sinai to our next stop, Judea. We have already talked extensively about Judea, so we won't dwell too long here. If you want a refresher on the recent history of the province, check out the second half of episode 3 of this series. As you are aware by now, there was a fair share of discontent with Roman rule in Judea. But let's not overstate things. Josephus mentions there was much unrest in the first half of the first century, but then fails to give many examples of real resistance to Roman rule. 
Overall, I would say that Judea was simmering with frustration throughout this period. The provocations of Caligula had added heat to the fire, but the unrest was not boiling yet. Outside of Jerusalem, more fuel was added to the fire in 54 AD. In the coastal city of Caesarea, which was in Judea but had a significant Gentile population, a local ordinance was passed which restricted the rights of the city's Jews. This caused riots and counter-riots between the Jewish and Gentile populations, requiring intervention of the local garrison. Mostly Syrians, they took the side of the Gentiles, leaving the Jews feeling abandoned and persecuted. The Jews now armed themselves and gathered in the market. The governor of Judea, Antonius Felix, who was the brother of the freedman palace who we talked about in the last two episodes, had to respond. Unable to talk the Jews out of their anger, he ordered his soldiers to charge them, resulting in a bloodbath. The violence continued, and Nero was asked to arbitrate. His response left the Jews unsatisfied. More fuel on the fire. When we reach the 60s, we will see that temperature come to a boiling point and spill over into the Great Jewish Revolt. Also in Judea, and the next province we'll discuss, the followers of Jesus were still around. While their community is small and mostly Jewish at this point, it is still growing. From the late 40s into the 50s, a new convert named Paul had begun to preach this new religion to non-Jews, which was at first controversial for some followers of the Way. He traveled throughout Anatolia, Macedonia, and Greece several times, preaching and gaining new followers to his religion and instructing those already following Jesus. These followers had begun to be called Christians in a city called Antioch, the chief city of our next province. Syria. We reach Syria by traveling north along the coast of the Mediterranean from Judea. Syria in the classical world is slightly different than the modern Syria of today and includes what is today modern Lebanon along with the west half of modern Syria. Besides Antioch, key cities of the province were Tripoli, Tyre, Beirut, Apamea, Palmyra, and Damascus. Syria was a rich province, benefiting from lucrative agriculture, artisan crafts, incense, perfume, but especially trade with the East. Taxes on this trade, and on the rather large cities of this province, made the Romans a great deal of money. Antioch, though, was the most important city in the province. The city had been founded by Seleucus, one of the other generals of Alexander the Great. Supposedly, Seleucus chose the site after an eagle was released with a piece of sacrificial meat. The place it landed would be the center stone of the new town. Antioch was tucked between the base of a large, steep mountain called Mount Silpius and the River Orontes. Like Alexandria, the city was developed in a planned fashion along a grid system, unlike the twisting organic layout of early Rome. At its founding, the city was populated by a mix of the local Syrians and Phoenicians, along with several thousand Athenians and Macedonians. Antioch quickly grew into an extremely diverse and cosmopolitan place, a true crossroads of the empire. By the time of the first century, the city seems to have had 200 to 300,000 residents, and it was the third largest city in the empire, after Rome and Alexandria. Unfortunately, fewer records of the city survive after the Seleucid period and before the Christian period. We know a great theater was built on an island in the Orontes, connected to the city by bridges. A forum was built after the style of the forum in Rome. A great temple to Jupiter on the slopes just above the city. And a large hippodrome, a stadium for chariot racing, was constructed on the edge of town with seating for 80,000 spectators. We know Pompey visited the city when he conquered the east. Caesar stopped by in 47 BC. The city is said to have favored Octavian in his civil war, which is notable because much of the east of the empire sided with Mark Antony. We saw in 19 AD that Germanicus had his base here before he died, likely from poison. Many of the early emperors favored the city of Alexandria as a base of operations. It was less isolated and served as a fitting center of operations for campaigns in Armenia or against the Parthians. 
The proximity to the Parthians was also a downside to the city. The city was not a distant march from Armenia or Parthia. In 253, the Sassanid Persians, the successor state to the Parthians, defeated a Roman army in Syria and then put the city of Antioch under siege. In 540, the Persians came again and this time destroyed the city. A second disadvantage to the city was its propensity for earthquakes. On April 9th, 37 AD, an earthquake struck the city. In this early year of Caligula's reign, he still had the large sums of money from Tiberius's penny-pinching, and he donated considerable sums to rebuild the city. Another, more terrible earthquake hit the city in December of 115 AD, and the city was shaken with shocks and aftershocks for several days before the earth was still. As chance would have it, the emperor Trajan was in the city when the earthquake struck. One of the consuls for the year was there as well, and he died in the earthquake. Trajan received minor injuries, but fled with his staff to the center of the Hippodrome for safety. As many as 260,000 people are thought to have died, which is over half the city, which may have grown to four or 500,000 people by the beginning of the 2nd century. Again, imperial funds helped to rebuild the city. The Romans, looking for someone to blame, found the Christians a fitting scapegoat. Surely their lack of sacrifices or worship of the Greco-Roman gods had triggered the earthquake. Christianity spread to Antioch early on due to its proximity to Jerusalem, the first heart of the Christian movement, and because of Antioch's significant Jewish population. There is a multi-directional transfer of the Christian message from Jerusalem to Antioch, both from early Christians traveling there, as well as Antiochian Jews coming to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage and hearing the Christian message there. Following the persecution of Christians in Judea, many early Christians fled to Antioch and began to preach their gospel there. Its mixed population meant that non-Jews would have bumped into the early Christians as well. Aside from the traditional Greek gods, there was also growing interest at the time in Near Eastern deities, such as Baal and in cultic mystery religions. For the pagans of Antioch, Christianity may have offered a new and interesting alternative to their traditional gods. It was in Antioch where Greek-speaking Jews first began to preach the Christian message to non-Jews, and they met with significant success. The early leaders of the church sent a Christian named Barnabas, who was a Greek-speaking native of Cyprus, to Antioch to investigate the rumors coming in from the city. This was probably in 38 AD, so very early on. According to Christian tradition, it was Barnabas who, a few years after arriving in Antioch, recruited the recent convert, Paul the Apostle, to come to the city and help him preach. From here, Antioch became a chief city of the Christian movement. As I mentioned earlier, it's said that the followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. We don't have a meaningful guess on the size of the church at this time, but it was large enough and or wealthy enough to send aid to Jerusalem during a famine there in 46 AD, and to send Paul out on his missionary journeys to Anatolia. We will follow Paul here, leaving Antioch and moving northwest to Anatolia and Greece. Anatolia has, for me, been one of the more difficult places to describe throughout this show so far, because of the variety of terms used to describe the region. Anatolia, Asia Minor, and Turkey all describe roughly the same area. I have tended to choose Anatolia because it's a geographical term, while it won't accurately be called Turkey until the 13th or 14th centuries. Within Anatolia slash Asia Minor slash Turkey, are a large number of regions or provinces, with names that might mean nothing to you unless you are a lover of staring at old maps. Names like Pisidia, Cilicia, Phrygia, Bithynia, Lycia, and Paphlagonia are a mystery to most of us. Others like Pontus, Galatia, Ionia, or Cappadocia might ring a bell, but still be a bit mysterious. In my opinion, Nowhere has cooler names than the regions of Anatolia, but knowing where Caria is isn't really necessary. So let's do a quick run-through of the more important geographic breakdowns of Anatolia, and then we can move to its cities and culture. 
Looking at a map of Turkey would be helpful, but if you don't have one in front of you, you can imagine a horizontal rectangle about twice as long as it is tall. On the bottom side of the rectangle is the Mediterranean Sea. Off the coast of the bottom right corner lies the island of Cyprus. To the rectangle's left is the Aegean Sea, full of small islands. The top left corner of Anatolia, or our rectangle, is directly across a small waterway from the region of Thrace. To the top, or north, of the rectangle is the Black Sea coast. The top right of our rectangle borders Armenia and the Caucasus. The bottom right side borders Syria. So that's the outline. Now for the more important regions. In the bottom right corner of Anatolia is the region of Cilicia. This was a small but rich and fertile region which bordered the Mediterranean and often had more close connections with Syria or the Middle East than the rest of Anatolia or Greece. Its capital was at Tarsus. North of Cilicia are the dry highlands of the Anatolian Plateau, a rugged and lightly populated region which included Cappadocia toward the east with its capital at another town called Caesarea, and the province of Galatia more towards the center of the rectangle with its capital at Ancyra. On the far left side of the rectangle, or Anatolia, was the province of Asia, which included the wealthy cities along the Aegean coast, like Halicarnassus, Miletus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, or the capital of the province, Ephesus. This region along the Aegean had long been settled by Greeks, or perhaps local Anatolian people who assimilated into Greek culture, and it was one of the most Hellenized places in the empire. The north coast of the rectangle, bordering the Black Sea, was at this time a province called Bithynia and Pontus, and had its capital near Thrace at a town called Nicomedia. Near this city, just across a stretch of water at the eastern tip of Thrace, was a town at this time called Byzantium. So that's the key. Cilicia in the southeast, Asia in the west, Bithynia and Pontus in the north, and Cappadocia and Galatia in the middle. The highest concentration of people would have been Cilicia and along the Aegean coast. This last region, with its famous cities, was notable for its urbanism. Cities were the cultural center of the early Roman Empire, as they had been during the days of Hellenism and the Diadochi. But we shouldn't get carried away when we think of urbanism in the ancient world. Unlike today, where more than half of the global population lives in cities, and an even larger majority in the developed world, for all of history, and every society before the Industrial Revolution, the majority of people lived in small, rural, agricultural communities. The Roman world was more urban, and more urban-focused than what came before or what followed in the Middle Ages. But population-wise, a supermajority was still rural. Closely linked to Anatolia, especially the province of Asia, were the provinces of Greece. During the first century AD, Greece was split into three provinces. First, Macedonia in the north, with its capital at Thessalonica. Second was Achaia, which included the Attic Peninsula, home to Athens, the Peloponnese, and the island of Euboea. Its capital was at Corinth. Finally, on the west coast of Greece was the province of Epirus, with its capital at Nicopolis. These provinces were enjoying a period of prolonged peace during the first century. Unlike many of the provinces, Greece experienced little unrest and had few riots. It's been noteworthy to me that Greece has been so quiet during our first 60 years, and even in the late Republic, little of political significance had risen to the level of our story. Not since the days of the last Macedonian Wars had Greece really asserted itself against Rome. When Corinth and the Achaean League lost their misguided war against Rome, Corinth was destroyed and its population killed or sold into slavery, signaling total Roman domination of the region. The Greeks had proudly fought back against the Romans several times, but the smoke rising from Corinth signaled the time for armed resistance was over. And yet, in a sense, Greece had conquered Rome. Greek culture, philosophy, religion, sports, art, and architecture had greatly impacted the Romans since the first Roman forays into Greece. Rich families hired Greek tutors to educate their children, 
and hired Greek artisans to make statues for them. Even those as distinguished as Nero looked to Greece and admired its music, its theater, and its athletic traditions. Greek culture was considered prestigious, and this has helped ensure that unlike many places in the Roman world, local writing has survived. Greek documents were more likely to be considered worth preserving or copying than documents from most other provinces. Unlike writers in any other province, Greek writers felt they could take more pride in their Greekness than their Romanness. The Greeks themselves, and I'm talking about Greeks both in what is modern Greece and across the Aegean in the province of Asia, were extremely proud of their heritage. I'm drawing from Martin Goodman again here. Greek writers frequently looked to their glorious past for inspiration, not just to a wider Greek heritage, but specifically to a local identity. Goodman points out that Plutarch, who wrote a series of biographies comparing famous Greeks and Romans, peppers his work with references to his own small town of Chironea. When much of the Roman Empire had embraced a wider Greek culture, laying claim to a more focused Greek identity was a way to stand out. The Greeks had never been a united people. Only under Alexander had most of the Greek world been focused on a common purpose. Being under Roman control led the Greeks to share some small degree of Greek identity, more than in pre-Roman times, but as ever, there was still a greater focus on their own local civic pride. During the Roman period, there were two options, either focus on becoming a leader of your city, or hope to make it as an outsider in Rome. The latter option offered more wide-ranging prestige, but a Greek at this time would have had no real hope of rising in the Roman-ruled empire. Sure, there were some exceptions, such as the Freedman Palace, who was Greek by ancestry, but had first been a slave before being freed, recognized for his talents, and brought into the administration of Claudius. But this was the exception. The more common path for an ambitious Greek was to rise in their own city. The rich of Greece spent money adorning their home city rather than building countryside villas. This patronage and beautification of the cities led the major Greek cities to become exceptionally beautiful and adorned with art. Two of the most important and familiar of the cities of Greece would have been Corinth and Athens. Like I just mentioned, Corinth had been destroyed in 146 BC, the same year the Romans wiped Carthage off the map. Like the Carthaginian city, Corinth had also been rebuilt. The Romans had made this their capital of Achaia due to its location at a crossroads between the Peloponnese and mainland Greece, as well as a portage point from the Aegean to the Gulf of Corinth. Porting your ship over Corinth's isthmus allowed skipping the journey around the Peloponnese. Athens enjoyed favor because of its history of art, culture, and philosophy. Gifts given from Roman patrons to this city were common. Caesar had helped remodel the Agora of Athens after the model of the Roman Forum. Most significant of the patrons of Athens was the Emperor Hadrian in the early 2nd century, who had enacted a lavish building program and completed the massive temple of Olympian Zeus, which was finished more than 600 years after work began in the 6th century BC. All this attention focused on Athens left the Athenians almost unbearably proud of being Athenian. Every city, though, had its own history to be proud of. Sparta had its military legacy, which by the 1st century AD had not been active in 200 years. So instead, the Spartans focused on their training of children in athletics, spoke in a stylized Doric accent, and attributed newer practices to their legendary founder, Lycurgus. They lived nearly the same style of life as the rest of Greece, but with a frosting of local traditions. Enough to entertain the Roman tourists who came to see the famous Spartans who had stood against the Persians at Thermopylae, and then defeated the Persians at Plataea. The Greeks who romanticized and were nostalgic for their glorious past conveniently looked over their centuries of stagnation, back to their heights during the Golden Age of Greece. By the first century, that was a very long time ago, about 500 years since the famous Persian Wars. They could point to this moment, or that statue, or that painting from the 5th or 4th century BC, but they were silent regarding the years after Alexander, when their prestige was low. To be fair to them, we do the same today. 
remembering the Persian Wars or maybe the Peloponnesian Wars, but ignoring the 2,300 years of Greek history since then. Nero, the great fan of art, music, theater, and all kinds of spectacle, naturally loved Greece. In 66, he competed at the Olympic Games, where he was gracefully, and wisely, considered the winner of all the events where he participated. In 67, Nero went to the Isthmian Games, similar to the Olympic Games, but near Corinth, and there he declared that the Greek cities would no longer be required to pay any tax to Rome. They were free of the Roman burden. Like Nero himself, though, the tax exemption wouldn't last much longer. Next, we move north to the triangle of land that made up the province of Thrace, which projected between the Black Sea and the Aegean toward Anatolia. Thrace had long been an untamed region on the edge of the Greek world. While there were a few Greek cities here, notably at Byzantium, the Thracians themselves were resistant to urbanization, preferring their small villages for centuries after contact with the Greeks. Fast forwarding to the transition between Roman Republic and Empire, Thrace was one of the many client kingdoms, supposedly allied to Rome, but not directly ruled by them. In 46 AD, though, the Thracian king, Romatelsis, was murdered by his wife. With this, Claudius ended the status of Thrace and made it into a Roman province, with its capital in the south, at Perinthus. This province also included a few of the northern islands in the Aegean Sea, such as Thassos and Samothrace. After its incorporation as a province, Thrace, being away from any frontier, remained peaceful until the crisis of the 3rd century. Most important to later history was the city of Byzantium, which was located at a tip of Thrace just across the Bosporus from Anatolia. The city was founded in the 9th century by colonists from the Greek city of Megara. During the Peloponnesian War, the city traded hands back and forth between Athens and Sparta, but that was several centuries before our decades. The city had little historical impact to the outside world for a long time. It was a useful base or waypoint for trips to and from the Black Sea, but was only a medium-sized city. What the city did have going for it was its incredible geographic position. In a moment of genius, Emperor Constantine in the 4th century would make this town into his new capital, soon renamed Constantinople. I promise this won't be the last time you hear that word in this series. From Thrace, we now move north to the provinces of Moesia, Pannonia, and Dalmatia. To be honest, I have less to say about these provinces than most of the others, but I can at least give some geography and background. Moesia bordered the Black Sea on its eastern side and the Danube River on its north. It was mostly in what is Serbia and Bulgaria today. The Romans had first entered the region around 75 BC and forayed to the Danube. By 29 BC, a general named Crassus, grandson of that rich triumvir, had subdued the area, but it wasn't incorporated as a Roman province until a few years before or after 1 AD. A governor of Moesia is mentioned in 6 AD, so by that date at least, it was a province. The inhabitants of this province were mostly Dacians and the Moesians, who lent the province its name. The province was fairly remote from the center of the Roman political and cultural world. Augustus used this fact to exile Ovid the poet, who was condemned for his immoral poetry. Specifically, Ovid was sent to the city of Tomis, today called Constanza, which lies on the Black Sea coast. The province would see heavy use by the central imperial administration in the coming decades for the war with the Dacians, who had lived on the opposite side of the Danube. In 86, Durus, the king of the Dacians, ordered an invasion of Moesia, where they surprised and annihilated the Roman defenses. The Roman response was swift, and most of the remainder of the Dacian war took place in Dacia itself. We'll cover all of that in just a few decades. Pannonia was a province along the upper Danube in modern eastern Austria and western Hungary. 
Its name is thought to come from a local language, where the root pan meant swamp or wetlands, similar to the now less common English word fen. According to Pliny the Elder, the region was heavily forested, especially famous for its huge oak trees. Pannonia's economy was based on timber and the growing of hardier grains like oat and barley. Hunting was popular here too. There were many mines in the mountainous areas where the provinces met the Alps. The province was slowly captured over a couple of centuries by the Romans, who were trying to link their territory lying on the Balkan side of the Adriatic to Italy. To do this, they had to expand into Pannonia. Under Augustus and his philosophy of relying on natural borders, he pushed Roman control to its logical end, the Danube River. Initially, it was part of a larger province of Illyricum. In 6 AD, a huge revolt broke out in Illyria, which we covered briefly in the first episode of the Decades. This revolt against Roman rule required Tiberius and Germanicus to come and fight a four-year campaign of attrition to regain control. The Illyrians finally gave up the fight when the Romans destroyed their crops year after year. Following the war, Illyricum was split into the provinces of Pannonia and Dalmatia. Along the Danube, there were several legions stationed to keep the German tribes like the nearby Marcomanni and other local tribes contained on the other side of the Danube. Next decade, we'll see these Danube legions play a key role in the political merry-go-round spinning the Roman world. Dalmatia was the other half of the remnant of the old province of Illyricum. Named after the Dalmatai tribe in the area, Today, it would make up the western parts of Croatia, Bosnia, Montenegro, Serbia, and Kosovo. The Romans had fought three Illyrian wars during the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, destroying the local RDI kingdom and creating Roman protectorates in its place. Still, the area wasn't totally under Roman control. Piracy originating from Dalmatia and raiding the eastern coast of Italy was a large enough problem that Augustus invaded Dalmatia, subdued it, and made it into a full province in 27 BC. As we just saw, the province continued to be a problem for the Romans, and that huge revolt broke out in 6 AD, which threatened to pull the area out of Roman control. In the long term, the province was too important for the Romans, given its proximity to Italy and Greece, for it ever to be allowed to become independent. We are heading into the homestretch here as we approach the Alps. The Eastern Alps were in the province of Noricum. Noricum was populated mostly by Celtic people, who were an independent kingdom until they asked Rome for help, dealing with the Teutons and Cimbri, who were Germanic people who invaded at the beginning of the 1st century BC. From then, Noricum was an allied kingdom of Rome. With its large mining and metalworking industry, the kingdom threw its support behind Caesar during his civil war and supplied him with cavalry as well. It became a client kingdom in 16 BC, and Claudius integrated it fully as a province during his reign. Just to the west was the province of Raetia, in what is now Switzerland. Raetia had been conquered in 15 BC, when Tiberius and Drusus had campaigned here. German incursions had been a frequent problem for the native people here, and when the Romans took over, defenses were built in the north of the province. Beginning in the early 2nd century AD, the Romans began constructing a long, defensive wall that protected the V-shaped area between the upper reaches of the Rhine and the Danube that jutted into Roman territory. This border wall, which I mentioned when talking about Gaul, was called a lime, the plural being limites, and it protected the area of land on the far side of the rivers from German invasion. Raetia itself soon became thoroughly Romanized, with evidence of Roman gods being worshipped, Roman roads crossing the mountains, and several buildings have been found featuring underfloor heating systems. Economically, the province produced a lot of minerals. Like its neighbor Noricum, the mines in Raetia supplied a lot of iron and other metals for Roman industry, and in agriculture, cattle in the valleys, vineyards in the lowland slopes. Augustus was said to have favored the wine from Raetia. Reaching the Alps and the border with Gaul, we have now completed a full circle in our tour. The ride is over. Please collect your bags and ensure you've left nothing in your seat. 
Perhaps it would be best not to unpack your bags just yet, though. Next time, we will jump into another whirlwind of travel across the Roman Empire. In the 60s, we'll spend time in Britain, Armenia, Judea, and Rome, of course. I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Till next time. <laughs>